theyeshiva.net. Okay, so page 112, Hashem. you see the second column. This mimer was said by the Alter Rebbe, by the Balatanya, whose yard site was yesterday, Chavdalo Tevis, in the year Tovkuf Samachhei. Tovkuf Samachhei, which in the secular calendar would be equivalent to 1805. It starts off with a Pasuk in Ve'eda. Vayoymer Hashem al Moshe v'Laren Leimer. Hashem tells Moshe and Aaron, Kaches matcha, take your staff, your stick, v'hashlich l'fnei parai, and throw it down before parai, throw your stick down before parai, and yehil asanin, let it become a tanin. Tanin is a snake. And then, I'll just read to you the story here. Is it a speck? Okay, no. Right. What do you want to say? Crack I don't want to say anything. I'm translating like Rashi. Rashi says Nachash. Rashi says Tanin is Nachash, a serpent. So I said a snake, but there are other interpretations. What do you think it was? I don't know why it doesn't say Nachash, because by by Adam Chavis it's Nachash. Right. Right. Okay, this is a a legitimate discussion. What Tanin is? It's very interesting conversation. Reptile. So. Basically, in the beginning of Eira, I mean, the, in the middle of Eira, Berevi, Perik Zayin, Pasuk Ches, and on, before the ten plagues begin, Hashem tells Moshe Anar, and he says, Pare will ask you for some miracle, some wonder. So tell Aaron, take your stick and throw it down before Pare, and let it become a, Rashi says, a snake, a tana. And that's what they do. Aaron throws a stick down in front of Pare, and it becomes a snake. So what happens? Pare summons his own uh, magicians or experts, and they all do the same thing. They hurl down, they throw their sticks, and they all become snakes. And then what happens is, Aaron's stick swallows up their sticks. This was intended to impress or persuade or inspire Pare, but as the Torah says, Pare remains abstinent. So even after his stick became a snake, and even after Aaron's stick from a stake becomes back to a stick and swallows up their sticks, Pari remains unmovable, unmoved. Okay, that's the story of Pipshat. This mimer is coming to discuss the deeper layer behind the story. Meaning, it's based on the axiom that uh, in Torah generally every story has layers upon layers upon layers. Even Alpi Pshat, there is the external layer of the story, meaning it's like, wow, look what we can do. But there's a lot of different interesting things you can do. The fact that this story is chosen, this particular miracle is chosen, has significance. And certainly when you uncover deeper meanings and symbolisms and spiritual meanings behind it, so the same story takes on profound symbolisms. So it says, to understand what is this entire concept of a stick turning into a snake. And then, and then it goes back into a stick. It doesn't remain a snake. 
וגם another detail, מה שזהוי המויפס הראשון שנוסנו לפרי וקודם לכל אסמאקס. Remember also that this is the first wonder, the first miracle that they demonstrated to Paray before anything else, before all the ten plagues. Meaning that before the ten makas, blood, frogs, etc., lice, stumps for their kingdom, and the other seven, the first thing that they showed Paray was this reality of the stick turning into a snake. This means that somehow this had to be the first message for Paray. And of course, we can add even more. It's also the first thing that Hashem showed Moshe back in Shmois, when he was standing by the snap, and he refused to go, and he gave all the different excuses why he's not the right man for the job. And Hashem finally, and Hashem is trying to persuade him that he is the right man for the job, and at some point he says, Nobody's going to believe me anyway. So Hashem does a series of, uh, of two, he does a series. The first thing he does to convince him otherwise, what does he say? He says, throw down your stick, and it becomes a snake. And then Moshe is afraid. He says, now hop on the edge of the stick, the tail, and it becomes back a stick. Okay, then there's the second sign of his hand, which becomes Mitzrayah's Kashalik, experiences leprosy like a snow. And then he tells him a third thing, that the water, you should pour water in, the water will become blood. This is all for the Jews, before going to the Egyptians. So again, the first sign that Hashem gives Moshe is, the stick becomes a snake, and the snake converts back into a snake. It's also the first miracle he wants Moshe and Aaron to do for Parai, and before anything else, to understand what is the significance of this. He makes it, the Pasuk says, The Pasuk says already in Parashat Shmois, and then again later, they should empty out. Vayinatzlu means they should evacuate. Empty out Egypt. Empty out Mitzrayim. Because part of the mission of the Jewish people, as he says, was you're not just going to leave Mitzrayim, you also have to empty it out. And that is why they borrowed the various vessels of silver and gold and cloaks and garments. They emptied it out. So the Gemara says on this in Pesach and Dav They turned Mitzrayim into a Mitzula, a net, without fish. The fishermen go and they have their nets and they lower it into the sea or the ocean or the rivers and it comes up full with fish. And that emptied it of all the fish. What is the meaning of this? What is the concept of this? Pirush, what it means is not just that they left Egypt broke. They took so many things and there was nothing left. It means something even deeper. They collected all the sparks, all the divine sparks that were in Egypt. And he says, They fell into Mitzrayim through the famous cosmic process known as Shvira, the breaking, the breaking of the vessels. So Egypt became empty of these sparks, until they remained like a, a, a net without the fish. They didn't even leave there one spark. This is how the Arizal explains why there's a mitzvah three times in the Torah that you shouldn't go back to Mitzrayim. Three different times the Torah says, never go back to Mitzrayim. In fact, Moshe Chagiz writes that the Rambam, who lived in Egypt for many years, used to sign many of his letters, Moshe ben Maimon, Ha'over al Shloy Shalavim Rambam's signature. Moshe ben Maimon, 
who transgresses three sins every day. Now, of course, you have to understand two things. First of all, if that's what the Rambam felt about himself, why did he stay in Egypt? And why it was so necessary to sign it in every letter? I mean, imagine today a chief rabbi signing, right? Some talking can. Some Yes, Rambam could write al-me'alavim Could be also. So it's a very interesting discussion. The Rambam Mamish felt he'd be over in Shlavan, it was a gather of an oinus, or he had a certain hetter, but he didn't want people should learn from it. But it's a very interesting discussion. So the Arizal says, what's the reason Put Mitzrayim you can't go back to? So one of the reasons he says is, is because we go to places because we have a calling there. We have a mission there. We don't just go to places, stop. He prepares, he orchestrates the step, the footsteps of man, meaning not just that physically a person could walk, but also the footsteps of man, that wherever a person ends up during the day, has been orchestrated. It's been orchestrated. So we don't end up places. We are sent to places. You think you ended up there, but you didn't end up. You were sent over there. You may figure it out, you may not figure it out. But there are nitsutsus. There are sparks. Sparks means there's certain energy, there's certain, in, in, in literal language, it means there's certain opportunities for you there. There's a certain calling you have. There's something I could accomplish there. There's something that I have a mission. There's a mission I have there. In Mitzrayim, they emptied out all the sparks, so they have no business being in Egypt. There's no Nitzutzis there. Now, what does this mean? It was the Yidin sparks or Mitzrayim sparks? No, Mitzrayim sparks. Is, is, is there a shot why they shouldn't go back to Egypt? Because this is so Because what? Is there a simple pshat why they shouldn't go back? I'll be pshat. Ah, ah, about the, the king, the king, he says, yeah? To buy horses from there, yeah. Corrupt culture. That's why you don't go back to Europe. <laughs> Some don't go back to Europe. To empty out the Nitzitzis forever? Or? Yeah, yeah. It says like this, Arizal says as follows. I mean, we'll soon learn more about the Nitzitzis. Basically, there were 288 sparks that fell. Uh, 202 of them were left in Egypt. That's why it says, V'gam Erev Rav Itam. Erev Rav, Rav is Reish Beis. 202. When they left Mitzrayim, they took out 202 sparks, which are all the sparks, basically, of Mitzrayim. But there's 288. So there's 86 left, Begematria Elikim. Aleph Lamed Hey Yud Mem is 86. That's the 86 sparks it's that were left. There's 86 years that the actual Avoda as Hey Vav Shana also Mitzrayim, yeah. So that's the sparks outside of Mitzrayim. But in the Mitzrayim there were Reish Beis Nitzutsus. V'hinei Lohavin to understand this. Lohavin inyin ha-Nitzutsus shenafu b'shvir sakeil and v'inyin ha-Alas. So in order to explain the whole story with the stick and the snake, he's getting into another topic to understand the concepts of these sparks that fell down during the breaking of the vessels and what it means to sublimate them. Ha'inyin, the inyin in this is kihine yadua, it's known, whenever he says known, it means it's known to those who know. It doesn't mean it's known, it's known, it means it's known. <laughs> it's known for those who know. Huh? I don't know what it means. I'm just telling you, when he says yadua, you should just expect something that you don't know. Everybody doesn't know that. Whenever it says yadua, don't expect to read something that you know. Something you don't know. I says it's known. It's known to those who know. Those who know things. Those who know. How many people know, right? Kahina, yeah, you do what's known, huh? I don't know. 
Okay, that's good. That, that's the, the unknown. That's maybe the deepest knowledge, right? That you don't know. Kihine yadu known inyan hashvira the concept of the shvira of the breaking of the vessels who misas zayin malkin katmoyin detoyu. It's the spiritual death of the seven primordial kings of a world known as the world of toyu, the world of chaos. Shenishbiru, they fell. Venaflu, they broke. Sorry, they broke. Venaflu and the sparks fell. Lamata below. Libriya yitzirasiya. To the three worlds, and they fell into shells, clippers are shells, husks, shalachtsen. They fell into a concept that we call clippers, shells, and sitra which means the other side. Sitra side, achir means the other in Aramaic, sitra achir means the other side, meaning the side that's not the side of Kedush of holiness. Of course, every nitzitz is a lot of energy. What this means is, Kemayal Derech Mashal Benishmas Take, for example, the soul of a person. Before the soul came into the body, she was completely nullified, completely one, completely aligned with the presence, with the light of the infinite one, blessed be he. As the Pasuk says, In Melachim Beis, Leo Anovi says, Chai Hashem. I stood before him, which in Sifri Hanister is a metaphor for every neshama, that every neshama could say about itself, my soul before it came into the body was completely nullified, it was completely subsumed, completely submerged in the infinite presence of Hashem. It's because there was nothing to block, to darken, or to eclipse on her, on the soul, the revelation of godliness. So therefore, naturally, organically, she felt who she was, and she was completely one, completely nullified, completely part of her source, in the ultimate sense, no separation. When the soul descends below, and it encloses itself in a body, that by its own nature, its brute, its coarse, its physical matter, which is what it's supposed to be. This is not a tragedy. Gufa Chumri is the reality. The body is material. It's physical. That's what it introduces into life. Azai haguf master Allah. So what happens is, the body eclipses the vision of the soul. Now, suddenly, the whole world and everything in the world appears to the human being as a yesh, as something that is completely separate, detached, and independent of divine infinity. It's basically, somebody puts a, what do they give out in the airplanes, you should be able to sleep, what are they called? Yes. Huh? You put on, they put a blinder on your eyes, a blindfold. You put a covering on your eyes. It doesn't see. Pasha doesn't see. The truth. What doesn't it see? It doesn't see the bitl of all the oilamas. The oneness, the ultimate unity, or the nullification, of all the worlds in the presence of the light of the infinite one, blessed be he, who gives them all life and sustenance and substance and existence continuously. So here you have, he's giving a metaphor for a phenomenon where there are two different levels of experience. 
there's how the soul sees reality before it enters into body into the body, and then there is reality after it enters into the body. And that creates a very serious transformation. Not because the reality changed, but because what changes is my experience of the reality. And that's the key. The reality may be exactly the same. My experience of what reality is, is a completely (coughs) different experience. Because it's based on what my vision is capable of at the moment. And if there's something that is blocking my vision, and not allowing me to experience this vision. Is it being blocked to like seeing through colored glasses? Okay. Before Toyota Oid it's blocked. After Toyota you could start seeing a little bit through colored glasses. In other words, that depends on where the person is and their sensitivities and their antennas. Didn't we say earlier, though, that the Adam was created not from Olam Hatov, that he comes from a lower place, that the animals yeah, are no. from Olam Yeah, yeah, no, he's not saying the Neshamas from Olam Hatov. He's giving an example, which he's soon going to get to the Nimshal, of a concept of having a spark that's blocked. That's, he's just giving a marshal, so he wants to give it from the personal experience of the person. Now, for somebody who doesn't know about this contrast, the marshal is very hard to understand. Usually a marshal is trying to make it relatable. <laughs> But the mushal here is a fine nimshal. You know? <laughs> Usually a mushal, you give it a practical mushal so people get it. Here the mushal itself is a very sensitive mushal. What does the mushal really say? The mushal is really introducing, if, if somebody is to take this seriously, a very, very heavy idea. To put it mildly, I would use the word heavier than heavy, but uh, I'm not sure I have the right word for it. And that is that there's two visions of reality that are completely different, and the soul knows it. The soul knows that what it's seeing is something very different than it used to see. And it is. And that, it is. So understand the tension that that creates in life. And that's really the source of all tension and anxiety. Although most of us feel tension in a specific area, this tension because of finances, this tension because of marital disharmony, this tension because of children's issues, the tension because of you're Jewish... <laughs> you, come from, you come from Europe there's tension because of unresolved psychological dilemmas or whatever it may be huh? or all of the above and more and more you'll consult with your local expert but the source of all the tension and that's a very important the source of all the tension the source of anxiety comes from one issue and that is that there is a dual a dual uh, reality, a dual vision of the way the soul experiences reality independently, the way it experienced it for thousands of years before it made the journey into our mother's wombs and then into ultimately an independent body, and then post that. So, you know, a little humorously, there's life before birth, there's life after death, right? So the 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 Litsane Hadar, the, the comedians like saying that science already has established that there's life before birth. They have established that there's life after death. The only question is if there's life after birth. That we're not sure yet about. Now, what is this what is this dual vision? It means that uh, to quote uh, to quote a poem, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as is. Infinity. That's the confusion of the soul. That it doesn't recognize the life after birth. That's the dichotomy. 
So if the doors of perception were cleansed, but they're not cleansed, the doors of perception, he says, are darkened, are eclipsed. So there's somebody who puts something in front of my eyes physically, and I can't see. I can't see the world around me. I can't see the glory around me. I can't see the majesty around me. Blinders. Blinders, profound blinders. But here the blinders are so profoundly existential. And what is the diff- what, what am I seeing and what am I not seeing? I'm not seeing, basically, that reality is divine. Why is reality divine? Because all existence, the substance of every reality, the reality of every reality, the reality of every... Reality comes from the word real, truth, MS. Reality is real. What is real? What is the truth of reality? The truth of reality, the Balatanya says, is Ein Saif Baruch. The infinite reality of the divine. That is truth. In other words, there's infinity everywhere. Everything is infinity. Everything is part of infinity. And that begins with yourself. It begins with yourself, with your own identity. Any perception of the self, any perception of the self outside of this identity is already a crude perception that has been introduced as a result of a blinder. It's not how the soul itself would have experienced reality, and therefore not itself. So that's why he says by the soul, Bittl was its most organic, holistic, natural uh, MO, way of life. Why? Not because it has to force itself, not because it's surrendering to something else, because without any blinders, when there's Gilealikos, when the doors of perception are cleansed, when all blinders are eliminated, then everything appears as is. What is? What is, is that the Ein Soif, is Mechayo Mahava, is the substance, is the reality of all reality. But we come into a, a place called the body, and we don't see. We don't see. Now the question becomes a whole different question. Is there a God, Bechla? It goes from one extreme to another extreme. From one extreme, where is there an I? <laughs> the question now becomes, is there a God? Even if your answer is yes, it's not the same yes that the soul once experienced. It's a different yes. It's a yes based on tradition, or a yes based on proofs, or a yes based just on fear. <laughs> You're not going to say what you think. Whatever. I'm not going to get into what your yes is, why you say yes. Is that, is that not the journey? That's the journey we have to go on. This is not a judgment call. Don't, we, we're busy whenever we define things that we're busy judging people. He never does that, I told you. You understand? He wasn't complaining, on the contrary. You're identifying. All healing comes from identification. Facts. That's what it is, facts. Facts and deeper facts, yeah. So, 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 this, so, so this, this transition, this metamorphosis, is such a profound a transformation. It's almost like it's almost like a cry. You can almost hear you can almost hear a lamentation that he just can't see it, and not because he chose not to see or because there's something wrong. That's the nature of reality. The nature of reality is the soul, the soul's perception has to experience everything through a body. And the body, by nature, is a material a material existence, which is also part of the Ein Saif. 
but the way it translates the message to us on an intellectual or emotional level is a person cannot see that oneness anymore. A person doesn't see it. The Koshnitz Magid on his deathbed, there's a story in the, that he was on, he was on, it was already before he passed away, and uh, he, told, uh, he told his son, his son was there, and he told his son that uh, I don't have a body anymore, it's all soul. So his son took his father's hand, lifted it up, and says, Tata, Ich tap doch gif in the, po- po- the po- Polish accent, the Polish accent. Ich tap doch gif, which means I feel body. So he says, mein Zun, the taps mit gif fills the gif. The instrument you're using to feel me is with your body. So that's all you can feel. The instrument you use to determine reality that will define the reality that you will discover through the instrument. You can't discover a reality by employing the instrument and you, uh, that, that, is going to, that by definition is going to define the reality. You can't have a reality that will be greater and deeper and more perceptive than the very tool and mechanism you're using to define the reality. So when the guf is looking at the world and the neshama is looking through the guf, it must see a world that's completely not finite. It sees a world that is basically completely egotistical. Everything is a yesh of neatzmai, and it's survival of the fittest. Everybody's just trying to survive in this world. In another world, in the neshama before the body, the doors of perception are completely open. There's complete transparency. Everything appears as is, infinite. So now my question to you is, what would life look like if those blinders wouldn't be here? That's important to think about. What would life look like? All of life. What would this class look like? What would your marriage look like? What would your relationship with your children look like? What would work look like? What would eating look like? What would sleep? What would everything look like? From small things to big things, from emotions to to perspectives, from uh, relationships, what would reality look like? Why is it so important to think about this? It's important to think about this because this is reality. Everything else is not reality. This is actually reality. So it's important to think, what happens if one day I'm going to start living in reality? Baruch Hashem, I'm not. Okay? Thank God, right? Like, 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 like somebody once said, thank God I don't know the truth. Thank God. <laughs> Makes things simpler maybe, or more complicated. But let's say one day, one, let's say one day reality happens. So I want you to understand something. Whenever Jews talk about Mashiach, 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 what is that really? What is that really? An imam and all these things. The real concept is, basically, that Judaism says one day, reality will be real. And if reality will be real, what is reality going to look like? Through the body? Of course through the body. Once we were sent down to the body, it all works through the body. There's no escaping that anymore. It works through the body. There's a reason the soul was sent down. That's what I'm saying. It's not a tragedy. It's not because somebody made a mistake here. <laughs> this is the journey. It works through the body. So that's a real question. If, I, if my doors of perception are cleansed, what do you think life would look like? Anybody wants to answer? 
what your marriage would look like. Right. 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 Now remember, this itself has multi layers. How much of ain't so one can grasp? Every, but the common, but the, the truth is that this is a common denominator of every neshama. Every single neshama before it comes down has this. So this is not something that has to really be acquired. It's a vision that one really has. Because the soul is very well aware of this. The soul needs no convincing of this. We think we need convincing of it because we tell ourselves we need convincing of it. But really, this is more in tune with you than any other vision. Because remember, the body essentially is a corpse. The soul gives it life. But then the body imposes on the soul a perception that's alien to the soul. That's the tension of life, the psychological tension, because the soul is struggling to recover that old perception, and the whole world is telling the soul, you're delusional, you need meds. You become a sugar, yeah, you need, you, need, you need a lot of help. But the soul knows that it doesn't need help. So there's a very profound tension, and until one could make peace with the soul's reality, so that the soul could make peace with itself, and stop being told it's a meshugana, or it's hallucinating, there's a tremendous anxiety in the soul. And no vacation in the world will assuage this tension. Nothing. On the contrary, it will usually increase it. Because you're sitting at the water, and you're relaxed, and everything is supposed to be perfect. And you're wondering, you have everything. You're healthy. The view is unbelievable, right? Everything is supposed to be perfect. This is the euphoric state that Americans look forward to. And nothing has happened. It's like, what? now the tension is even more. What's going on now? What do I need now? What's next? Okay, so Baruch Hashem, you get hungry, you go for lunch, and you forget about it. Mm-hmm. Right? But Because but, it's really, it all goes back to this issue. The issue has nothing to do with circumstances. You'll make your circumstances a little better. You'll have a beautiful view. It's all the nice things. Geschmack. Enjoy your vacation. But the tension is something else. The soul is jumping out of its box. It's jumping out of the box because... It sees reality in a different way, completely. It experiences reality in a different way. That's the story of the Balkan. Maybe there are a few moments when you have that story where you, like, you have that freedom. You see, oh, I see the Torah view. After a while, you don't have a hard to fill in your experience. I think it's just smooth and beautiful. So you're saying that the temptation of psychedelic uh, no, substances. No, no, somebody once told me, I, and I know a lot of people, they told me that's the only reason they do it. They want to see. You can have it through that well-truth experience for a little while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's my point. It's very terrifying. I wonder what would what would life look like? Start with your marriage. How do we know what life marriage is a good like? place to begin? We were never there. How do we know what's, what's going to? You were there, and you are yeah. there. No, no, it was it, it was erased before you came in. No, here. no, no, no. You think Did it was erased? Did everybody come here not erased? Why? Why did you pick up your phone sounds now? Like you, you, you know sounds it. Sounds like a scientific <laughs> nervous habit. It sounds like a scientific. Uh, but what you know, made you ner- what made you nervous about my question? No, I'm fidgeting. But I always fidget. You can't go to Tzaddikim for this. You have to go to yourself. So I, I, I agree. Until you get to that but place. how how the world would look without your body you, interfering? Not without your body interfering. Without the perception being blocked. 
Well, that's your body interfering. You know? I mean, okay, say it whichever way you want, without uh, your eyes open. perception being blocked. Without the perception being blocked. Your eyes are open. Nobody knows, and nobody's going to know until they die. And that's the end of the beginning and the end. And you have to die. And you can become spiritual about it's it. And you, could, you could try to convince yourself. Nobody has to die. But you'll never, you'll never see it until you die. That was, that wasn't the question. The question is in this huh? world, how do you deal with it? The question was in the next world. Okay. Nobody, nobody knows this world. Period. We know, we know. We're talking about it. We're trying to expand the base a little bit. If, if this question was answerable, we, we would have known no, it already. I thought a person that lived in that I think your eyes are closed. Is that why the question is closed? Okay, so what do you see? What do you see? You see cartoons? Yeah. He's telling me, uh, my, my eyes are closed. His eyes are open. Can't loud. There's this question about the people that went into the party. Of course. The four people that went into the party. What do you see? We're grappling with this. Rabbi Kiva came out in peace. Fields of poppy and... Elisha Benavuya couldn't deal with anything afterwards. Reality was too complicated for him. Rabbi Akiva, man. And Ben and Ben Azai, right? One died and one went insane. That was Abar Nechnesul Apardis. Now you have to know why each one responded in his own way, but what exactly did they see that drove some off the deep end. <coughs> and Rabbi Akiva comes out in complete peace. What did he know that others didn't know? Remember, the two people that went into the cave for 14 years, they came Who? out. Who? Two, the father and the son that went into the cave for 14 years, they came out. They were Who is it? Shemba. Ah, they mean that. They burnt the world. No, they destroyed the reality. It's just a stark place. But I wanna, I'll bring out one point. I just want to say one point here. I mean, he still has to get to his nimshal here with clippers and, and the nitsutsus and all that. Huh? <coughs> one particular one particular practical ramification, more than practical, psychological, also practical has to do very much with self-perception. What do I mean it has to do with self-perception? We have here a definition of the word bittel that is very meaningful and very profound. The word bittel in halacha means nullification. The word bittel in Avaidas Hashem, when somebody says, you read in the Sefer Yafimim, vatel yourself, means what? Nullify yourself. Obliterate yourself. Abnegate yourself. That's what it means. Bittl. In Allah we have bittl b'shishim. Yeah? You get lost in the 60. The drop of milk gets lost in the ratio of 1 to 60 in the fleshik achal, and so it's kosher. In other words, its flavor is lost. It's nullified. But there's a question in Allah what bittl means. Does bittl mean, machlekes or does bittl mean the drop gets lost and forfeited, and therefore it's insignificant, or the pshat is, the rush, it's considered transformed. It's transformed. It becomes part of the challenge. It's a different definition, and it has halachic ramifications. What the definition of bittel is. When we speak about bittel, what do we mean by bittel? Here, in Avodah Hashem. It means to nullify yourself. But here he actually, he says, bittel is the natural state of the soul. 
the natural state of the soul is bittel. The natural state of the world is bittel kala elam. It's ain't safe. Actually, not bittel is unnatural. That comes from blockages. When there's no blockage, there's bittel. When there's a blockage, there's no bittel. That means bittel is the natural expression of reality. When reality can't express itself naturally and it seeks alternatives because there's a blockage and therefore you create new realities, new perceptions and alternative definitions of reality, now suddenly bittel becomes challenged. If this is the case, then when a person looks at himself or a person looks at herself, and what do they see in themselves? What do you see in yourself? I want to ask you this question. When you look at yourself, and you would have, let's say, if I would ask each of you to give a description of your deepest self in two, three minutes, right? You think most of it would be Milas or Chesronis? Huh? Virtues or vices, or neither? What do you think would come out? Most people in this room. Just facts. Lamashal Payas? I don't mean just facts where you live and what coat you're wearing or what yarmulke. If you have six or eight, I don't know what do you have. They didn't check when you came in? I'm asking, it's fun. I'm asking deep, those aren't facts, but deeper facts. I don't really mean the name of a mother, the name of your mother and father for a birth certificate. That's important. Who you are. Yeah. No, yourself. Yourself. Your values. Your inner self. What does it look like? What does it look like? <laughs> wow. Huh? Oh, okay. So we do this. We do this all the time. You'll see when people think throughout the day, much of their thoughts about are who they are. Probably all thoughts are about who we are. Even when we're thinking about somebody else, we're really thinking about who we are because it's my response to you. I'm never thinking about you. It's what you do to me. Oh, she makes me so angry. This guy is so crazy. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about what you do for me. In other words, I'm talking about myself. You make me angry. You make me crazy. You, it's always about me, right? So probably all of our thoughts are about ourselves. Even if it's about the world, it's about how we are experiencing the world. So, and certainly there's a lot of thoughts, mamas directly about ourselves. I'm in this state, I'm in this state, I'm in that state. Especially when you get up to Davin, let's say you want to really Davin, and the, we'll right away come into Davin, and your thoughts is, I can't Davin. I don't want to Davin. I don't believe in this. Uh, I'm not interested in this. Uh, what do all these words mean anyway? I have no relationship. What am I doing? Okay, by that time Davin is over, you're good to go. <laughs> but, uh, the, and the more you get into it, the more you have all these confusions, all these bilbulim, I'm in, I'm in, I'm not in, I mean it, I don't mean it, I, I really mean it, but I'm really good, but I'm so bad that I don't even know how bad I am, and I'm so bad that I don't even feel how bad, etc., etc. The first yesoid here, the first fundamental idea is as follows, that in truth, the truth is this, the only time you're discussing yourself truthfully is when you understand this truth about yourself. In other words, any self-definition, listen to me. I'm going to listen to me. Listen to the idea. Listen to the idea. Don't listen to me. Because that will be part of the problem. You are the solution. Any perception 
or definition of self outside of this one, namely, that you are part of infinity, you are an expression of Oyrein Saif Baruch because Oyrein Saif, the light of the infinite one, is infinite, and it includes you as well. You're also part of Ein Saif Baruch Or, any definition of the self, outside this, that God is in you, with you, part of you, shining through you, at this moment, in this place, at this time, under these circumstances, any definition of the self outside of that is coming from a compromise of the true reality of the self. Any definition of self that does not capture the self under this umbrella, in these words, that I am an extension of the Ein Saif, in other words, that I am part of the divine I, so another definition of the self is basically coming from a blockage, which we all have. We're blocked. There's blinders. But that also means the blinders don't take away reality. Blinders don't disturb reality. They disturb my appreciation of reality. This means that all the problems that you say about yourself are always perceptions of how you're experiencing yourself, not based on who you really are. Now, this is, a, this is life, life work. <laughs> to try to align my experience of me with me. But it's a different type of work already. Why is it a different type of work? Because it's aligning, it's not creating. It's aligning my appreciation of me with me. So now I ask you, if I would be able to align my appreciation of me with me, who, what would I think of me? I would only know when it's aligned. The, the, the mylas go up. It's mylas? It's not about mylas anymore. The word mylas is already a product of the abuse. You understand? The word mylas is, you know, you're a horrible guy, but you have a few mylas. <laughs> or... You're not a horrible. You have only mylas, yeah. But it's already, it's already in that world of judgment. Yes, mylas versus mylas versus. Now think about this. If you have to, you want to have a very honest conversation with somebody, the most honest conversation you ever had, ever. In other words, everything is going to be open. There will be nothing that will be hidden. Nothing that will be concealed. You're going to open up yourself completely. Strip every last garment and every last layer. For many people, that is the most frightening thing in the world. They will not even let you get close. Like atomic energy. Like the, like the nuclear, like Demona in Israel. Even if you get close, the machine guns, the, 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 the planes will... We'll throw bombs. Don't get close there. But what really is that fear based on? What is that fear based on? What is generally the fear of vulnerability based on? What? What is it? What is the fear of being honest based on? What's going to happen if I'm going to be honest? You'll lose either your comfort with yourself or... Equally, equally uh, 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 common, you're going to lose your pers- you're going to lose your standing in the eyes of the person you're talking to. That you 
that you think they have of you, or they may even have of you in your mind at least. But that will lead you to lose comfort with yourself. That's of course, which itself is also. So what happens if they're gonna if they're gonna think lowly of me? Then uh, who am I? Again, it's back to me. Who am I? So I want this person. If he knows this or she knows this, it's over. It's all over. They'll never look at me the same way. They'll never say good shabbos to me again. And Bechlal, I used to be a chash of a yid. I'm going to go down from being a chash of a yid. I'm going to go into the dumps. I'm going to go mamish to the dumps. I'm going to be a nobody. I, I am a nobody. <laughs> because this is true. But at least, in the community, I'm a somebody. So at least, on some level, I can also be a somebody when I look at myself the way the community looks at me. Which is, of course, a very horrible way to live. Because it means you don't really exist, right? And the only reason you exist is because somebody else thinks you exist in a prominent way. And the longer you could feed that lie and that perception, you will, and you'll do anything to hold on to it. Because if not, you lose everything. And to lose everything is very, very painful. But what imagine if you could see yourself a little bit from the Balatanya's perspective. Imagine you could see yourself from that perspective. What would that mean? That would mean that... What would that mean? What would that translate into? What do you think? If you could really... I don't mean this in a verbal, intellectual way, but if you can experience yourself from that perspective, what would such a conversation look like? What would such a presentation look like? What would you be able to come with when you need to speak to somebody openly? Then, no vulnerability will terrify you. On the contrary, on the contrary, it will not scare you at all. Why not? Because the real self, the real, real, real self is not only not something to be ashamed about, the real self is actually not even a self, it's part of the divine self. It's part of insight. So it's the greatest self-affirmation to the point that you don't even need self-affirmation. Because it's naturally one with oneness. Yeah, like we learned in Vayigash about Yehuda, where self-expression even becomes a compromise of confidence. But it's not something that you've built. Right. Even your own positive accomplishments in life don't have to. Even your positive accomplishments are part of your problem. Because you're busy with them. You're busy using them to justify your existence. Because without that, I don't have an existence. So even when we speak about positive accomplishments, we're part of those who speak about their negative accomplishments all day. In other words, obsession comes in two forms, my friends. Obsession comes in the form, I'm bad. There's an equal obsession called, I'm good. So how do you deal with <laughs> And that's equally the same issue. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm so good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I'm really good, but I'm really good. And I'll prove it. I'll prove it. <laughs> I'm good. It's the same issue. Now, this doesn't mean I don't have mistakes. On the contrary. It means that all my mistakes usually come, are coming from the fact because I'm not being me. <laughs> and the moment I'll be me, then of course I'm going to get rid of my mistakes. In fact, I immediately disassociate from them. But what about saying I'm sorry? What about saying I'm sorry? Why is it hard for somebody to apologize? Why is it hard for somebody to get up, imagine in shul in front of a thousand people... I made a mistake yesterday, I'm sorry. What's going to happen after that? What's going to be left? 
what's going to be left. The whole image of who I am is gone. But according to this, what's really going to be left? You're going to be left with something that's indestructible. You'll be left with you. On the contrary, by not doing it, you're never in touch with you because you're creating a fake you, a false you that doesn't even exist. And then it works the other way around. In order to get closer to that you, I need to do that. Because as long as I live with a dual reality, I can't live with real reality. So it's the other way. The more vulnerable, the more refreshing it is. Because it actually allows me to stay in touch with who I really, really am. <coughs> yes, Rabbi Litzman. <coughs> Once my father described somebody and said, he's a very good person with a lot of faults. Okay. <laughs> and that's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> But, but you understand that the faults, the mistakes, the sins, even if they're very heavy, are usually attributed to the fact that the person has never been connected to their true self. Because most sin comes from a void. And the void comes from the fact that I feel horrible, I feel empty. Right? Addictions, sins, they're coming from a void. We're trying to fill a void. What's that void coming from? The void comes from that God is not in me, with me, this moment, right now. If it would be, if I would have that perception, what's the void? The void is that I'm outside of Ein Saif. I'm outside of Ein Saif, and I have to create a substitute reality. So the body desperately struggles to find grounding on which I could say that I exist. I don't need that grounding. Because, fakert, the less I exist, the more I exist. <laughs> the more I exist, the less I exist. I hope you understood what I said. But the body is desperately trying to create a substitute reality. So I could look in the mirror and say, ah, I exist. The moment something happens around me that's questioning my existence, I'm terrified. And I will concoct reality. I'll do even a stupid thing. I'm late to an appointment. Why am I late to the appointment? Because I left late. So the guy calls me one o'clock, he says, where are you? So the voice in me says, tell him that Forche is blocked off, and give him a whole story, it's already blocked for three years, and make it nice. Explain to them how the city works here, and I'm stuck 45 minutes. The thing is, Forche has not been blocked off for a few months already, besides that you left an hour late, don't do it with Forche, besides that you're not even on Forche. Right? But it's always the FDR is bumper to bumper. You ever heard that? The FDR is bumper to bumper. Why do we do this? Why can't you say the truth? The answer is, if I'm going to tell you I left late, what's going to happen? You're going to look at me as disrespectful. You're going to look at me as irresponsible. So my image is going to go down in your eyes. So my image is going to go down in my eyes. So who am I? Who are what's left of me? So therefore I create every lie is basically perpetuating a substitute reality of self. So I should be able to stand in a more safe zone and a more solid grounding in the world. What happens if I say the truth? I say the truth and I say, I'm so sorry. I left late. He may be fuming. Yeah? <laughs> I once had a Shabbaton somewhere to Montreal and I missed my flight because I slept late <laughs> I set the alarm but I did what good Jews do it's called snooze I wanted to sleep another five minutes I, lift, I, 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 I missed the flight it was Friday it was a Newark flight and it was a horrible weather so I called up to get the next day and said there's no more flights today no more flights I ran to the airport I couldn't get a flight 
So now I had to call up the lady organizing the Shabbaton to say I'm not coming, and they organized around a year in advance. It wasn't just one of these Malava Malkas that they, they call you three and a half hours before, you know, and then uh, they call you Acher Hamaisa, they want to know why you didn't come yesterday. But uh, a guy called me from California to come to a lecture the next night. I said, I'm booked already. He says, but I put up signs, you're coming. <laughs> anyway, so I call her up. <laughs> I'll never forget, I call her up. I call up the lady. She gets it. your reality. <laughs> she says, hi. I say, hi. So I say, uh, I'm so sorry, but I'm not going to make it for Shabbos. She says, what? Why not? So I missed the flight. She's like, why did you miss the flight? So every natural instinct in me was saying, tell her, your grandmother died, you have to go to a Levaya. Somebody committed suicide near the building and the police arrested you. They were hushing you. I got into an accident. I broke my foot in the middle of the night. The doctor said, you're not going anywhere for nine years. Epis to, 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 to be at Mamtik. She's going to know if I broke my foot. But I knew... I knew that that's one of the worst things you could do in life. It's toxic, it's poisonous, and it doesn't allow you to live. It creates the biggest tension because your life is based on fakeness. Even a small lie. It's a lie. So I told her, I told her, I'll tell you the story. I set my alarm for five. I pressed snooze. I slept an extra hour and a half. I woke up, 6.30, I missed a flight. She started to laugh. She started, she said, that's the whole story? I said, that's the whole story. I overslept. She was laughing. I said, what's so funny? She says, I can't believe that's your excuse. <laughs> Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. That's it. So that's my excuse. I overslept. She said, for 12 months we're working on this. I'm so, 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 so sorry. I'm sorry. I feel horrible. I apologize. I'm so sorry. She was laughing. <laughs> it was very interesting because my soul was also laughing. And now you want to know if I made it for Shabbos, yeah? <laughs> I ran to LaGuardia and there was a last flight and I came 10 minutes before the flight and the woman said, <laughs> why are you so late? So I told her the story. She said, you'll take a flight at night. I said, it's Shabbos. I can't fly on Shabbos. She says, in honor of the Sabbath, I'll let you go. <laughs> I arrived to the hotel five minutes after Lichtzenden. <laughs> that was my mindset there. Okay, but what's the point here? The point here is, in life, we always have these opportunities. It always comes back to the same issue. Are you going to create a substitute existence? Every time I lie, I create... A, I'm not talking about lying for Bikuach Nefesh, or what the Gemara says, you know, you want to save... Whatever. Then it's a whole different Indian. I'm talking here out of fear of image, image issue. That's what I'm talking about, which is what a lie basically is. What is it? It's, I'm going to disintegrate. Why am I going to disintegrate? Because I have no I without you thinking that I'm a good guy. And the moment you think I'm a bad guy because I came late to an appointment that you waited six months, there's nothing left. What is this based on? I don't even know who I am. I don't even understand who I am. On the other hand, if you start understanding this, what happens? I make mistakes. You know why I make mistakes? For whatever reason, could be I make mistakes because I don't realize who I am actually. I make mistakes, I sin, I do bad things. And that's not the basis of my eye to cover up on them. On the contrary, I could be vulnerable and I could reclaim that there is a real eye that's beyond all that. 
that doesn't get destroyed or created by the image of people around me and therefore by my image of creating a pseudo-reality that doesn't exist. I have a question. Yeah. What is the idea behind telling lies and excuses for people that you'll never meet again, you're not going to be different with them. I understand that image when you're people you're surrounded then Excellent question. Why do people lie all the time to people that they don't have a connection to? They're not doing shaduchim with them. I think, I think, I think if you think of me, what a jerk he is, what an idiot he is, yeah, what does that do for me? I, I'm not that point. I don't care if it's somebody I never, I never will meet again. I don't care. Okay. So, so, you, so your psyche, so your psyche worked it out a little bit. Now the truth is, when you're honest with people, they respect you, of course, much, much more than when you said bumper to bumper, because they know there wasn't bumper to bumper. You know when people lie to you. Everybody knows. Right? You feel it. So when you tell me, even if I don't look at Google, you don't need Google for it. When you tell me I was late, I slept in, actually, you're human. I can, we, we respect people much more. So it's really the other way around. <laughs> but in our perception, I have to be perfect. It's really people want that you should be human. You're human, you made a mistake, you slept in, okay. You say, I'm sorry. You, you get much, much more respect. That's besides, the, that's besides the fact. But I'm talking here about our fear of, God forbid, being imperfect. People like imperfection. Why do they like imperfection? Because then they could connect to you, because they know that they're imperfect. If you're perfect, I can't connect to you. If you're vulnerable, I'm also vulnerable. We could connect so it actually enhances relationships really much, much deeper. The more you could say you make mistakes, the much res- more respect you're going to have. <laughs> and that's a fact. Because people really could connect to you. They trust you. They trust you. They, 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 they feel that there's something very real here. So it's actually mamish the other way around. They feel that there's something real. Page 113. Daf Nun Zayin Ahmed Aleph. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Six lines from the top. So the metaphor employed in order to explain sparks that fall down from a world that we know is called the world of Toyo. And those sparks need to be elevated the marshal brought is the soul of a person. The soul of a person, before it comes into the body, is completely one, completely unified, completely submerged, completely bottled, and completely subsumed by the presence of the Infinite One, blessed be He. Why? Because there's absolutely nothing blocking. There's nothing darkening, nothing eclipsing, the perceptiveness of the soul. And because there's nothing eclipsing it, so therefore, its natural organic state is oneness with the Ein Soif, without any any separation. However, once it descends into this world, so by definition of its, excuse me, of its being enclosed, of its being manifested, of its being malubush in what he calls a gufa chumri, a body and a world that is much more brute, uh, more coarse, 
more material. So naturally, the soul's vision gets eclipsed to be able to look at the. So now that it, it sees itself, it sees the world, it sees reality, it sees it as a yesh and a dover nifrit. It sees it as a self-contained, egotistical, detached reality, and the soul does not naturally see the bittel of all the olamus l'gabayirin. The soul does not see the natural oneness of all the worlds with the infinite presence of Hashem who gives life and sustenance and substance and vitality and really the very existence to all of the worlds. So we have here the phenomenon of the soul that is experiencing a metamorphosis from the way it is on its own and the way it is on its own remains also in this world. It's not like the soul dies, the soul loses it. It doesn't lose it. It's just... If I'm wearing a blinder, so even though my eyes can see, but right now I can't see. If I plug my ears, even though the music is playing, usually I can hear the music. But my ears are plugged, I can't hear the music. But it's not that the music is alien from me. On my own, I would hear the music. On my own, I would hear the music. The Baal Shem Tev once gave a metaphor to describe... Uh, huh? Yeah, with, with the music. Huh? Well, what are you referring to? Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing <laughs> metaphor of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov once said that there was a, there was a, there was a town, and you know you have the like we have a, you have it a lot in the city, especially uh, musicians. And the town had a real skilled musician who was sitting in the in the in the square. in the square, and he was playing his instrument, and it was it was heavenly, it was paradise. And you could not move by it. People who walked, they remained glued. People who had a uh, sensitivity for music, it was so brilliant, it was so inspiring, it was musically so enriching, that they just stopped. And after a while, they started to dance. They started to dance. He says, you come to the square, and you see people are dancing. And uh, he says, says, one man walked by, and he looks, Abandon Meshagoyim bunch of crazy, crazy people that off their rock, they push it. The whole, my whole city went insane. My whole city went insane. How could you live in this city? Normal people. The Bashamdu says there was only one issue. This man was deaf. So all he saw was people jumping around, screaming, <laughs> holding hands, swaying, dancing, leaping off the earth. And in his mind in the city square, to do this is insane. From his perspective, he was completely right. Who, who, walk, what are you doing? What are you dancing? Because he didn't hear the music. So the Baal Shem Tev said that that's often what life is. That sometimes there are people who hear music, so they dance. But everyone else looks at them and says, because they're deaf. So from their experience, there's no music. What are you dancing? They don't have the antennas to be able to appreciate the music. This is how the Baal Shem Tev responded. There were those who criticized him that some of his disciples, when they daven, they daven with a lot of passion. They asked the Baal Shem Tev, why do you allow this crazy behavior? So the Baal Shem Tev says, it could be they're hearing music and you're just deaf. <laughs> so it's not even a judgment call. It's actually not a judgment call. It's, it demonstrates just... Re, the, the, the different different interpretations of the same reality. For him, people are just jumping up and down. They're crazy. 
And for them, it was just a natural response to the music. So this is a place where the soul is tuned into a particular reality. So before birth, every soul was tuned into this. Once the soul comes to the body, now it becomes, there's a struggle. And the struggle is, can the soul still sense, can the soul still, still experience the ain't soif, which is its natural experience, can it still hear the music? The soul hears the music and it starts dancing the whole time. But there's a voice that tells it, don't be crazy. Don't be a meshugana. Don't be, and, and the main thing is don't tell anybody else. Because <laughs> they'll really think you're off your rocker. So that's a, it's a very it's a very profound experience. Also a very sad experience. Also it could be a very tragic experience. What do you do for somebody who's completely deaf? How do you explain it? How do you even present it? How do you present it? They say there was once a, it's one of these you know stories, anecdotes, anecdotal stories about a nightingale bird. You know the nightingale bird is is known for its uh, its legendary songs. And the nightingale bird would come every day in the afternoon after lunch and hold a concerto in the jungle. It would climb up on one of the trees and all the animals would come around and bask and bathe in the beautiful melodies of the nightingale. And it was in the, the highlight of the day. This was you know, the moment of inspiration. And uh, everybody was close to the nightingale. They loved mm-hmm. the nightingale. And one day, as the nightingale was standing on one of the trees and singing a hungry lioness approached the nightingale and just ate it up, opened its mouth, and ate up the nightingale. And people were, people, animals were beyond furious. It was, you couldn't do anything with the lions, because the lions are the kings, the Gemara says, Melech Shabachayis, they're the kings of the jungle, but they were furious. And somebody went over to the lioness, one of them, and said, why, why? Felt ice prey in the jungle? There's no, no food, you had to... They had to go take this uh, this nightingale, and after after a while, they realized that the lion was deaf. The lion was deaf. It wasn't personal. Huh? It wasn't personal. Completely not. <laughs> the lion was deaf, so the whole world was being inspired by the nightingale, but for the lion, it was just another piece <coughs> of flesh. So that's what happens. Sometimes you can have in the same in the same community, in the same society, somebody is deaf, or a lot of people are deaf. They don't hear. They don't hear any music. They don't hear any music, so therefore they are convinced that reality, the way they live it, is perfectly normal. And they, everybody else is toit meshuggah, because they don't hear the music. The challenge is, once you hear the music, yeah, how do you go back to the reality of people who don't hear the music? Good luck. <laughs> that could be challenging. Okay, the amazing of it. Fine. Let's go right. The kach al derech marshal. The same is a marshal who in shviras hakelim shenaflu hanetzutzin de toyov and eslapshu beklipes debri yitzira asir. This is a marshal for the concept of shviras hakelim. Shviras hakelim means the breaking of the vessels, the smashing of the containers, where sparks of the world of toyu fell, and they enclosed themselves in the shells of the worlds of bri yitzira asir. Shaklipos machshichos al hanetzutzes. The husks eclipse the sparks, and they block them, they hide them from every side, every angle. So that the sparks should not feel anymore what they would naturally be attuned to. 
and that is the presence, the revelation of <coughs> the light of the infinite one, blessed be he. <laughs> to the point that these realities can become completely separate. As Paroi says, there's a Pasuk in Yecheskel that Paroi says, <laughs> The river is mine and I created myself. This was Paroi's philosophy. Somebody once said about a certain person, he's a self-made man and he worships his creator. This was Paroi. The river is mine, I made myself. How can a person develop this conception in life when the sparks that give him or her vitality are divine? In other words, what fuels your atheism is your relationship with the Ein Saif. So you have a paradox. The reason I could exist and have feeling is because I'm part of the Ein Saif. I utilize that fuel to deny any relationship with the Ein Saif. That's the concept of shviras hakelim, nefilas hanitzutzus. Nefila here doesn't mean a physical fall. It's a metaphor. Like all these words are always metaphors, symbolisms. Nefila means a concept when one thing is in a particular place and it ends up in another place but there's no association to the original. There's a jump and there's a fall. A jump is deliberate. A jump is intentional. A jump is I want to get from here to here. A fall, a nefila represents... A person has a nefila, so just like physically, it can cause a bad injury because it wasn't expected, you weren't prepared, it wasn't commensurate with what you're capable of doing, it's not what your body needs at the moment, etc. Spiritually or psychologically, we have the word a nefil, he's a nefil, he's a nefila. You go through a nefila, tremendous downfall, so that your original state is lost on the fall, but it's still the same person. It's when you end up in a different location, but there's no deliberate connection, and therefore, the relationship between the later point and the original point is very compromised, to the point that it may not be recognizable. So you have the original energy, but it's the way the original energy is distorted as a result of an in which you may not even recognize the beauty of the original energy. So sometimes you'll have, for example, a, uh, a genius who has a breakdown, and after the breakdown, they still walk the streets, and they utter words, but the words are not cohesive anymore. Sentences don't make sense anymore. There is somewhat of a genius that remains. There is something, a remnant of the ancient glory that remains. It's like when you look at the, what they discovered in the Atlantic, when they discovered in the 1980s the Titanic, the remnants of the Titanic. So when I saw the pictures of it, there's an album, I saw all the pictures of exactly what it looked like. I thought this is a very powerful marshal for the Shvira Sakelem of Olam Hatoyo. Titanic was the glorious ship of the time. It was extraordinary, right? What did they say? Even God can't sink it, right? That was the expression about the Titanic. Even God can't sink the Titanic. Big mistake. Huh? Big mistake to say that. <laughs> yes. Big mistake not to have enough lifeboats. I mean, a lot of big mistakes. Big mistakes to go too fast. Big mistakes to be so arrogant about your ship. I mean, a lot of big mistakes. And uh, a lot of Jews on it, too. So the Titanic sunk on uh, Isru Chag of Pesach, uh, 1912, uh, right? Tofresh yeah. Right after Pesach. I think a few days after Pesach. Isru Chag, or a few days after. So uh, in the Atlantic, they found, uh, they found a remnant. So when you look at the pictures of it, right, there is a similarity between every chamber in its original state and what it looked like now. 
they had the first class of the Titanic, the dining room, the ballroom. It was something extraordinary. The st- you could see it in the original photos, and it's all there. But the way it's there is completely not recognizable. You know, being years and years and years, uh, more than a hundred years, in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 the depths, in the depths of the oceans. So it's the same thing, but it's completely lost in translation, as we say. That's what happens to the sparks. So, be, so let's now understand. So this gives us a little glimpse to understand this concept of Olam Hatoyu. The Kabbalah teaches, it's a big Yisoyed in Teresa that before Hashem created our world, He created another world. And the, that world is called Olam Hatoyu, the world of Toyu. This is a very fundamental idea that repeats itself in my modern of Lakuta Torah pretty often. Olam HaToyu is the world of chaos. What made it the world of chaos? The Medrash says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu He built worlds and he destroyed them. So the Arizal says, that's the meaning of the Pasuk, that's base. that's world two. But originally, the world was once a place of toyu, of chaos. The Spirit of God hovered over the water. Merachefes is a combination of two words. Reish pei ches meis. 288 sparks died. In the world of Toyu, you had a world just like we have. A spiritual world, that is. A world of energy and a world of containers. A world of oir and a world of keli. Because everything in life is a marriage between energy and container. Between vitality and the vessels to contain the vitality. Between the soul and the body. Between music and music notes. Between uh, passion and words to express that passion. Between an idea of a book and the writing of the book. An idea of a business, a movement, an organization, a website, and implementation. That's always the frustrating marriage between lights and vessels. Oiris and Caleb. As you know, in this room, you have people who are great dreamers. They dream about world conquest. But when it comes practically, oy vavoy, very hard to get things done. In an energy level, they're superb. On a container level, it's very difficult. Other people are all containers, no energy. There's no energy, but it's all containers. They're excellent at implementation. It's really different between an artist and a businessman. Artists are very into light energy. Businessmen are always looking for the bottom line. Always the bottom line. And the relationship is always a frustrating one. Artists and businessmen together could take over the world, but they could never get along. <laughs> they frustrate each other ad infinitum because they are so opposite by nature. In the world of Toyu, the ratio was not symmetrical. In other words, the Oiris were Merubim and the Kalim were Mo'atim. The Oir was much deeper than the Kalim. And therefore there was a concept called Shvira Sakalim that he keeps on referring to, the smashing of the vessels. Smashing <coughs> of the vessels in the world of Toyu meant that the vessels could not contain the intense energy, because the energy was too intense for the vessel. So what happens? You have a situation of Harishimo and Nagasaki. You have an explosion, a tremendous explosion where all the vessels smash. But the vessels contain sparks. They contain sparks, but when they smash, they get splintered. And like when you have an explosion, it's the same house, but nothing is cohesive. There's a piece, there's a shard here, and there's a shard here. And now you have to put together the puzzle. On the debris of the world of Toyu, without cleaning up the mess, 
Shalom constructed the world of Tikkun, the world of correction, the world of healing. But he didn't first sweep up the mess. When you got a house, you sweep up everything, and then you put in the new house. He didn't do that. He put in, he planted our world in the debris of the world of Tayu. In other words, there's Tayu in every person. There's Tayu everywhere. Those parts of your life where the, there is a... Uh, there's a lack of cohesiveness, a lack of integration, where there's a lot of tension and anxiety, usually there's sparks of toyu there. Now the sparks of toyu are very, very deep, but they had a tremendous nephila. The smashing of the vessels meant that the sparks are there, but they have a nephila. What does a nephila mean? You cannot recognize, they cannot recognize their original splendor, their original beauty. So they have the language of the past, they have the energy of the past, without the outlet, without the direction, without the focus, without understanding their own context. Question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our world is put together only by the Torah mixed up, or is it new and Torah is yes. Yeah, our world is a world of tikkun, but it's built on and in, so to speak, the rubble and the debris of, toy, of tikkun. Right, so therefore in every, in every situation in life you have a mixture of elements of tikkun and toyu. The key quality of tikkun is S- smaller dosages of energy in larger containers. So therefore there's no smashing of the vessels because the vessels can contain the energy. And for vessels to contain energy you need large vessels and less energy. In toyu there's more oil and less kalim. In Tikkun, it's more Kalim and less Oy. And therefore, in Tikkun, you never have the level of intensity or creativity or rebellion like you have in Toyu. You'll, never, you'll have much more Hisyashvus, much more relaxation, much more serenity, much more resolution. You don't have the Ritchidoy Raisa. You don't have the, the uninhibited quality of Toyu. Toyu is uninhibited. It's infinite. Tikkun, by definition, is finite. Right? Tikkun is the senior citizen who says, everybody, relax. Don't get too excited about anything. Okay, we've been around the block. Let's just, let's just systems, systems, uh, uh, no tension, resolution, relaxation, a lot of integration. It has a tremendous mila. It also has a void. The void of Tikkun is it doesn't have the, the oomph, the oomph, the gusto, the zealousness. Tadeem has a gusto. The spark in the eyes doesn't have, right? It's a, it's a little more dull, it's a little more numb, it's a little more dead. And the two very have a very hard time communicating. Sometimes you'll have young people who are all of the Al writes elsewhere that youth is a marshal for Toyu and uh, age is a marshal for Tikkun. And youth, right? Young people often have that profound idealism we're going to change the world. Okay, then they have to start paying bills and, <laughs> and they stop wanting to change the world. And it's, it's, there's a tragedy to it. I said at the Bar Mitzvah of my son, the Gemara says in Shabbos, Al Tigui b'Meshichai, Elu Tinoikus shall base Rabba. Don't touch my anointed ones. These are children. So one of the possible interpretations is when you're a child, you have that messianic passion to change the world. Either you'll be Mashiach 
or you'll bring Mashiach, but you'll do something big. But as we get older, we get jaded. We get cynical. We fit into systems. So the Gemara says, Don't destroy that part of you. Don't destroy the child. Don't destroy the infinite spark that will not conform. Even though they will try to conform, they will try to crush it, they will try to repress it. We spoke about, uh, on Shabbos, we spoke about that in Zdoim, the Gemara Chazal say in Zdoim, every guest had to fit the bed, right? So you know what they did, yeah? If you were too long, they cut your feet, they cut your head, but everybody had to fit. So we explained that it's really symbolic of certain societies. Everybody has to fit the same bed. And if not, we'll cut off half of your personality, we'll destroy it, you should just fit in. But the main thing is everybody fits. Nobody sticks out. The worst is if somebody sticks out. After cut off your two feet, they'll cut off your feet, your hands, your heart, your chest, your head. The main thing is to fit in. You have societies that are built that way. You can't allow a person to be fully, to be fully present. So that's what we do. Midas daim, that's what we do. We may not physically, but psychologically, we often do it. You, you castrate personalities, forgive me, but that's what you do. You castrate and you celebrate it. You celebrate it. You want to know how you do it? Oh, how does one get back? You come to the shear. You come to the shear. Rabbi Engel says you come for 40 days, you get it back. Who don't come? Who don't come? No, won't let them no, I'm just, I'm just using. I don't know who's from where. I'm, I'm, I'm just using different Isis metaphors, symbolisms, to be able to understand the beauty of Taiwan. Usually, usually, there's there's a very deep energy there. Now, sometimes the tragedy is that the energy falls. In other words. It doesn't have a healthy, productive outlet. That's what a nephila means. Nephila means it's the same energy, but it's dislocated from its original space, and therefore it may express itself in a way that is contrary to what it really is. This is what we learned in the past. In Torah, Er told us by Yishlach the difference of Yaakov and Esav. Esav was a neshama of Tohu. Yaakov was a neshama of Tikkun. The shayrish of Esav, according to the Balatanya, is deeper than Yaakov. The spiritual source of Ace of Soul is deeper than Yaakov. That's why Yitzchak is so uh, enamored by Ace of. It's not because he makes a good rib steak. It's because Ace of Soul has a very profound depth to it. But Ace of is misunderstood. And Yitzchak desperately wants to bless him. Vavarechecha lifnei Hashem. You remember? Lifnei Hashem. Beyond Yudkei Vavkei. You have to get into very, very deep sources to, to, to elevate the, 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 the toyu. So toyu went through a tremendous nefila. The sparks of toyu got, when the kalim smashed, what does it mean smashed? They're not recognizable anymore. They're not cohesive anymore. You have godliness everywhere, but the godliness doesn't recognize itself as godliness. And therefore it comes up with alternatives. What are their alternatives? Pare's alternative was, the river is mine. And I made myself. That ability, that pride, is being fueled by a nitzutz of Ein Saif. Because everything is Ein Saif. Even atheism. Reb Nachman says in Lukuti Maharan that uh, in his style, Reb Nachman of Breslov says 
the famous shtickle there. Everything in the world has a niggin. Everything in the world has a niggin. Everything has a melody. And he says, even kfira, even heresy, even atheism has a niggin. He says, you're just singing the wrong niggin. <laughs> it has a niggin. It has a melody because it's, it's, it's ultimately, its stuff is ain't soif. But its outlet may be completely counter to what it really is. That's what nephila means. You fall. That's what a klipa means. You are blocked by yourself. Yourself is a blocked version of yourself. Well, understand what that means. Yourself is not yourself. Yourself is a second self. What do these people have? Doubles? What did Saddam Hussein have? A, uh, a double, right? So if that one gets assassinated, he's still alive, right? So we all have that in one way or another, right? You have doubles. And sometimes we mistake our, our doubles as ourselves because it looks very similar. So that becomes you. That becomes you. That's what a clipper means. That's what a shell is. They say there was a Yid from Chelem who was um, traveling home. So he went onto the train, and the stop was 4 o'clock in the morning. So he asked the conductor, he said he wants to go to sleep. If he could wake him up 15 minutes before so he could get ready to get off. He said, sure. So he goes to sleep, and it's pitch dark. In the same cabin, there was a Russian general. When the Jew of Chelem woke up, the conductor woke him up and said, it's the next stop. So it was dark. So he didn't see clothes. So instead of putting on his own clothes, he put on the clothes of the Russian general. He comes home to Chelem. His wife sees him. He says, Yankov is You're crazy? He says, what? He says, look at you. So he looks in the mirror, and he sees. Krasavitsa, he sees Asharman. So uh, he, tells, he tells his wife, he says, I always knew that Russian conductors were idiots. She says, why? He says, he woke up the Russian general instead of me. <laughs> so it's a chelem amaisa. But it's not such a chelem amaisa. Sometimes it's also a mumsi maisa. I hate to say, right? You look at the clothes, yeah? And that's who you are. There's no other self. The clothes define you. Some people, they invest so much in their clothes. Or I don't know any clothes. Clothes too. Their outer appearance. Because that's where I am. That's me. There's nothing else left. That's going to be me. So you invest in your shell rather than in you. So you create like a double. So what happens here is, these nitsutsus of Toyo are very, very deep nitsutsus. Tremendously deep. Even deeper than Tikkun. But they had a Shvira. And that's what Shvira means. Shvira means literally a breakdown. The first breakdown in history. The source of all breakdowns is the breakdown of Olam In fact, I would say every breakdown that we know about can be traced back to that breakdown. It can be traced back to that Shvira Sakhan. What is a breakdown? A breakdown is energy misplaced. And that's why the healing is not just uh, dismissing it, telling the person not to be what they are. Healing comes from liberating the spark, elevating it, tracing it back to what it really is, being it mila to its mucker, elevating it, not just dismissing it, destroying it, obliterating it. It's easy to say, he's a mishugana kid. She's a crazy teenager. Don't be crazy. You're not talking to me. Talk to me. Talk to my sparks. Talk to my sparks. Talk to my sparks. You have to tune in to the energy. You can't just mock the energy. So let's see another few lines inside. He says, Paris says, I made the river. I made myself. 
The Gemara says at the end of Menachah, sometimes you believe in God, you call him the God of Gods, but I'm also a God. Even though before the Shvira, the sparks were completely unified with the Infinite One. Because then, the presence of the Infinite One was revealed in them in complete unity. After the breaking, all the sparks descended and they're enclosed within shells. They enclose them, they cover them. They block the godliness that is in them. That's the marshal of the body that blocks the vision of the soul. So therefore all these sparks can't be in their natural state, which was a state of bitl. They were just expressions of Ein Soif. This is a very valuable line because the term klippus is filled, fills the literature of Kabbalah, fills the literature of Chassidus, and people just say it a whole day, klippus, 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 klippus. What does it mean? It's such a word that's used, especially in circles that they use these words a lot. And it loses all of its meaning. It's become such a meaningless term. And it really, it's a very sophisticated term. What is a klippa? Klippa is like an orange peel, a banana peel. Chayfefes, you know what chayfefes means, yeah? It covers, it protects, it surrounds the fruit that's in it. But also blocks it. It's like a walnut. Because you have also, a grape also has a shell. But when you look at the shell of a grape, you could see exactly what the grape looks like. An orange also has a shell. Okay, it's a thicker shell, but you see exactly what the orange looks like. The reason he says an egois is because sometimes you have a clipper, you don't even see. The fruit is not even connected to the clipper. You open the clipper, and then you have to take out the fruit. So you, the, the, the clipper, sometimes the clipper is translucent. Sometimes the clipper is transparent. Sometimes the clipper is... Opaque, very good. And sometimes it's so opaque that you can't even recognize the nature of that which is inside of it. It's completely, it's completely darkened and eclipsed. There's no remedy to extract the fruit. Like in the walnut, you have to crack the nut. You have to crack the shell. That's the only way you can extract it. So the word clipper then, then means something very, very meaningful. It's really a, a, a definition of reality. What is the definition of reality of klippa? It means any reality that employs cover-ups in order to exist is called klippa. Any reality that needs to cover up that which is inside reality in order to be, that is the definition of klippa. Now if you think about this, it says a lot. This has a lot inside of it, what he's saying here. Because how many realities are there like that? Any reality, any thought, any word, any deed, any emotion, any experience, that for it to be considered valid, it has to cover up something? That's called clipper. In other words, any thought, word, or deed, or emotion, or anything, that if everything was exposed it would fall apart. It would melt away. It would fade into oblivion. That's not called clipper. I mean, it is called clipper before it fades into oblivion. Why? Because the power of its existence is that there is a cover-up. There's a distortion. But understand the other way. 
any reality that even if you open everything up, it will remain intact, that's called Kedusha. That's called Kedusha. That's the definition. So, we have here an extremely, I would say, impressive, sophisticated definition of Kedusha versus Klippa. Contrary to what many of us uh, intuitively feel, Kedusha is what you've been told your whole life, and Klippa is what you want. <laughs> right? For many people, Klippa is what you want. Klippa, 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 Klippa. And Kedusha is what you hate. <laughs> what your father wants. Right? But really, it's, a very, it's much, much deeper than that. Not true? I don't Really, sometimes it's exactly the opposite. Okay, good. Good. In other words, Klippa means any reality that needs a shell in order to be. There has to be some shell. How dense the shell is, that depends on the nature of the Klippa. But it always needs a cover-up. So now think to yourself, throughout the day, how many thoughts, words, and actions, emotions have validity in your life because they employ a cover-up. And if all covers were removed, they would become nothing. That's how you should judge the validity of the thought or the word or the emotion or the act. That's how you should judge it. That's how much seriousness you should attribute to it. You have to tell yourself, if all doors of perception were cleansed and there was no distortion whatsoever... How strong would this thought be? How powerful would this emotion be? How legitimate would this craving be? How legitimate? We went a few days ago to Zhitomir in Ukraine. So in Zhitomir you had a Yid, Reb Wolf of Zhitomir. Reb Wolf of Zhitomir. He was a student of the Magad of Mizrach. He has a sefer called Erd HaMeir. On Purim, Erd HaMeir is on Chumash and on, on Yom Tovim. On Purim he has a shtickle. Uh, he has a shtickle, he says something uh, quite heavy. He says, why is it that Purim, the Megillah, includes chapter 1, which doesn't seem like a relevant story. There was a party, a Cheshveder summoned Vashti to come, she didn't want to come, so he had her executed. So he needed a new queen, so Esther was appointed. Really, the story of Purim, what we need to know is that Vashti was gone, and a Cheshveder needed a new queen. Exactly how she was killed, somebody poisoned her, her husband got into a fight. Yeah, she overdosed. It's not so relevant to the story. I mean, you can also discuss how she was born. I mean, you could go back and back and back. The story of Purim begins from the fact that Esther was appointed. So the Erda Meir says that the truth is that that's really the whole story of Purim. Because the Gemara says, why didn't, wanna, why didn't Vashti want to come? Achashverish wanted to show her for beauty. Laharis So therefore, as Chazal say in Masech Megillah, he wanted her to come without clothes. But in Vashti, she refused. Why? So the Chazal say, because, uh, because she was embarrassed. Whatever happened to her body, she was embarrassed to show her body. The Mary says, there's a deeper interpretation. It's, not, it's, it's the same interpretation, I'll be Nister. He says as follows. Achashverish, the Ramah brings from Medrash, Achashverish is Acharis Vereshis Shaloi. The beginning and the end belongs to him. It's a metaphor for Hashem. The Gemara says when it says Melech in Megillah, it's a metaphor for Hashem. Vashti <coughs> represents Klippa. It also has to do with, the Balatanya says Vashti comes from the word Shtei, duality. There's duality, fragmentation. That Dalton ever writes somewhere else in a put in mind. 
There comes a point in life where the king of kings summons Vashti to come. I want to see you. So Vashti says, no problem, but I have to get dressed. I have to get dressed. And when I get dressed, I'll blow everybody's mind. Psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically, socially. So God says, no, 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 no. This time I need you to come without any garments. So the Baal Shem Tev says, the Ramei says from the Baal Shem Tev, it's not that Vashti is killed. In the spiritual story, Vashti is not killed. Vashti disintegrates. Because the definition of Klippa is, you can only come dressed up. The moment I ask you to take off everything, what happens? You don't exist. I don't kill you. I show that you never existed. You never existed. The cover-up made everybody, including yourself, feel that you exist. The moment you remove the cover-ups, what's left? Truth. If truth is here, you have no existence. Because the whole power and legitimacy of your existence was that there was a cover-up. So when Vashti is uncovered, there she goes. She's gone. So the definition of Klippa is that I have to block. I have to cover. Because if not, something I have to cover. Truth has to be covered. If not, I cease. So now ask yourself, when you have an emotion, you have a thought, you have a craving, right? It's very, very powerful. You'll see whenever you have an addiction or a very strong craving, tell the craving, I'm going to do you, but give me three days. <laughs> give me three days. Let me Google. Let me ipetrach in the minion, right? What will every... Emotion tell you? Now! 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 Like con artists. The investment has to happen now. Remember somebody called me and said, I have a great house for you, but you have to close by 6 o'clock p.m. Today. Con artists always need things now. You know why? Because if I put them under the light, there's nothing left. So if I tell the craving, no problem, I'm coming back. Give me three hours, give me three days. No! Now, if you do it now, you'll have your euphoric Messiah. You delay me, you're done. Why? Because it knows that the moment it gets scrutinized, in other words, the moment you start challenging the cover-ups, there's no appeal anymore. The whole appeal was based on a distortion of truth. What about Kedusha? Kedusha, of course, Jesus is a good thing, but for a different reason. Kedusha, you can say, you know what? You could come back in three years. I'll still be here. <laughs> I'll still be here. My appeal is not based on cover-ups. So you can scrutinize. You could strip me beer, as they say, to the skeleton. I'll still be here in exactly the same way. It's not based on any shell. It's not based on any husk. That's why they used to say by Chassidim that the difference between a mitzvah and a veda is never the song. It's only the order. Both have the moment of ah. And both have the moment of oi. The question is only when. By a sin, the oi follows the ah. And by a mitzvah, yeah, the oi precedes the ah. By an aver, it's always ah. This is going to be awesome. going to be gewaldic. And then you do it. And an hour later you feel like, uh, what's the word? 
Oh, yeah. you feel like whatever. You know what you feel like, right? That's what you feel like. An hour later, ten minutes later, a day later. It's like when you eat what you're not supposed to eat. We all know the feeling before. Ah, this is Ganeid Mamish. And then you realize, Somebody once said about somebody who was eating too much on Shabbos. He said, He said, Yeah, but it's a stink tartan. And I know Lamaba stinktus. Your Lamaba is just very smelly. The ah precedes the oi. By a mitzvah, it's the other way around. Should I do it? Oh, I'm not in the mood. Once you do it, ah. Why? Push it. Because cover-ups, by definition, are not eternal. How long can you cover something up? How long can Bernie Madoff do his Ponzi scheme? For how long? How long can you live off credit cards? How long? So communism was all based on a lie. It was based on a lie, and it lasted for 70 years. This doesn't mean it has no power. Communism destroyed 50 million lives, and that's those who died. We're not going to talk about the psychological casualties of communism, etc. But essentially, its existence is destined to dissipate because its power comes from distortion of truth. And anything that exists only because of distortion of truth, by definition, is a balloon waiting to be popped. Why? Because the moment the sun shines, you're done. The moment truth emerges, and truth will emerge, because that's its nature. Reality is real. If reality is real, it will emerge. When it emerges, it's all over. So when Vashti is asked to show up, to show up without cloaks, without garments, there's nothing left. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.